This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Let's jump in. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness to us. Your mercies are new every morning, and so we thank you that we rise to them. Uh, there's nothing that we do to deserve or earn your love. Thank you for this class. Thank you that they're, um, you've given us your word to help us uh, think about what it means to be against the darkness. Thank you that you've given us your word to help us understand even this heavenly spiritual realm. You've not left us to be confused. You've not, not left us in fear, but you've given us truth to stand on. So more than anything, I pray this morning that we would see that we have a Savior who has defeated and conquered our sin, has conquered death, has silenced and defeated Satan himself, and we stand in victory over him because of who Christ is. Greater is he who is in us this morning than he who is in the world. And so, Lord, we stand on that. We celebrate that. We thank you most of all, though, that you have conquered and defeated our sin, that you have made a way for us to know you. You have made a way for us to enjoy you. And so we give you thanks for that. Be with us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's uh, jump right in. We don't have a ton of time, and I want to make sure we get as much done. I don't know if I'll get through all of this. The great thing is you can have Ask Drew all your questions, you know, next week, final session. He'll wrap it up with a nice bow. Um, I think Drew shared this from C.S. Lewis. He says, There are two equal and opposite heirs into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And uh, what I hope is that we're able with this class is to give you a real biblical understanding of just what does this mean. Drew will end next week. He'll talk about spiritual warfare and just this daily battle that we face. This morning, um, we're going to talk about what does it mean that, we, that Christ has defeated evil, that Christ has defeated sin, Satan, and what does it, what, what does it mean to rest in that? So as Drew has reminded you, there is a cosmic conflict which we face, angels and demons, spiritual beings. We're not alone in this world. The Bible gives us this picture, this drama that is unfolding. It gives us insight. It pulls back the curtain, as it were, and helps and gives us insight into what God is doing, not just earthly, but also heavenly, this drama that is taking place. And and, and not only the drama, but he also kindly gives us the resolution. And so um, we do have a supernatural worldview. And so I think that is important. We do. There are supernatural things. In our secular age, it can be more challenging to see this, but there is this cosmic conflict. And, we, and what I want is not just to have a supernatural worldview, but have a biblical worldview. So what, what does the Bible have to say about that? What does God's word have to say, not only about what should we believe about these things, but how should we walk in them? What does it mean to walk in these truths, to apply them to our daily lives? And, and so 
I hope, my hope would be this class will help you in that. So the question for this class, what role does the person and work of Christ play in this cosmic conflict? How does his birth, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, his reign, and return to defeat the powers of darkness? How, what role does he play? A key verse for us, I think I included it on your um, your outline, First John 3, talks about the reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. Um, so what does that mean? What does that mean? Connected with that is not just the work of Christ, but also his person. It matters who Jesus is, and it matters what did he really come to accomplish. So why did the Son of God become human? One, to reveal God to humanity. So that's where we see that in John 1.18. He came to provide a high priest who is sympathetic to our weaknesses. We see that in Hebrews 4. He he came to be an example to us. We see that in 1 Peter 2. He came to be a substitutionary sacrifice, Hebrews 10. And then 5, he came to bind up the demonic powers, 1 John 3. So I provided a lot of scriptures for you because we're not going to be able to walk through every single one. But I do want to provide this for you for your own study. So one caveat for this is, you know, when we talk about there, this is called Christus Victor. Um, There is this idea of what did Christ achieve? What was his victory? What did he come to accomplish? And I think you want to have proper proportion for this. And so what what I want to highlight and and press into you mostly is that penal substitution is the most important concept with the atonement, that Christ, his main reason for coming, yes, part of that is to bind up and destroy the works of Satan, but that is part, one part of his coming. But the most important part is his penal substitution, meaning that he died the death that we deserved. He, he, on the cross, took on what we deserved, and then we received by faith his righteousness, and so we want to highlight that the, the greatest truth, the most important truth that we stand on as Christians is that truth. It's the good news of the gospel. And our greatest enemy, our greatest problem in this world is not Satan, but our own sin. And so we have to deal with our own sin first and foremost, but we, but we do have an enemy. And so main point for this will be Jesus defeated. Thanks, John. Satan, by his sinless and sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, when Jesus returns, Satan and all his entourage will be vanquished forever. I love this quote from Andrew Abernathy. He says, we can rest assured that Christ, the divine warrior, you ever thought about that, that Christ is a divine warrior? He fights for you. He fights for his people. I think it's important to think about that. Christ as the divine warrior has fought And he will continue to fight victoriously against all powers that threaten his good purposes for his delivered people. That's just one. In that (laughs) couple sentences is so much you could just unpack. It is just filled as pregnant with meaning. But we can rest assured. So that's what I hope that as you leave here, we can rest assured that Christ, the divine warrior, has fought and will continue to fight victoriously against all powers that threaten his good purposes. So there's going to be eight key stages. um, These are some key stages that we're going to walk through, through Christ's conquest over Satan. I got this from John Stott, from his book, The Cross of Christ. 
Um, this is not original to me. Um, I think it's a helpful way, though, to, to lay this out and to think about when Christ came, coming as a divine warrior, what was he coming for? What did this conquest look like? And so let's start. Point one, there was a conquest predicted in the Old Testament. So Genesis 3, 14 through 15, God creates the world. All is good. When God put Adam in the world, there was a world of yes, but he had one no. Don't eat the, knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam eats of that. He sins, falls, um, and there is this interaction that happens between God and Adam, but also God and the serpent. And in Genesis 3, this is what we're, this is what we're told. The Lord God said to the serpent... Because you have done this, because you have deceived, because you have um, led, you have deceived Adam and Eve into sin, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I, so this is, this is the important verse, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. And so from this one verse comes the drama of all of Scripture. From this one verse, we get the main characters. You have the seed of the woman, then you have the seed of the serpent. And what you see throughout all of redemptive history, throughout all of Scripture, is that we are looking and anticipating and waiting for, is this the seed of the woman? Is this the promised one? Is this the one that is going to come and his heel will be bruised, and he will crush the serpent's head. And so this begins what we see in all of scriptures. And what I love after this, though, is that Adam, as he hears this, as he, as he takes this in and he's listening to this conversation, as he's hearing what God is doing, as he's aware of that he should be judged and dead, he yet sees there is this promise of life. Oh, there's going to be offspring, Oh, there's going to be more that comes from this. Oh, this isn't the end of the story. And, and up to this point, Adam had only called Eve, but he had only called her up to that point woman. He had just said, you are woman. After hearing this, what is, what is sometimes called the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the first good news that, had, that God proclaimed to Adam, there's one, or that he proclaimed to the serpent, there's one coming that's going to crush you. Adam hears this, and after hearing this, he believes God's promise, and he names his wife Eve, the mother of all living. And so it's this expression that Adam, he is expecting that one is going to come, and he will. His, his, his line will be one that is filled with life, not death, not judgment, not curse, and then to see and consider in Ephesians 1, Paul looking back and thinking about this great salvation, this great promise that God had made. He says this, plan from the fullness of time. God did this from the fullness of time to unite all things to himself through Christ. Things on earth and above the earth, spiritual beings. And so there's this idea that God, there's this conquest predicted that there is this one that's going to come to unite all things to himself. And that one, as we will see, is Jesus Christ. And so we see his conquest. Number two, conquest begins in the ministry of Jesus. So let's look at Matthew 4. Christ is born. 
We see that he is the word made flesh. He is truly God and truly man. And then we see his ministry beginning in the wilderness. Matthew 4 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him in, took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And so you see this, this entrance into the wilderness. You see this, and, and, and there's just a lot of similarities in there between the first Adam and the second. The first temptation that, that, that Adam faced and failed Christ now is facing in the wilderness by himself. He's thirsty. He's hungry. He's facing all these things, and, and things aren't as easy, right? Adam had this lush garden. He had a helper. He had his wife. He had all these things, and where he failed, now Jesus has come, and now he's come toe-to-toe with Satan and his, li- and his lies and his schemes, and he is trying yet again to lead Jesus. And what I love is Satan really thinks that he can lead Jesus into sin. He thinks that he can convince Jesus to sin against the Lord. And so he tries time and time again, and yet Jesus shows that he is this true son of God, that he is the seed of the woman, that he is the promised one that is to come. And so Jesus begins his ministry by looking, the, looking Satan square in the face and saying, I'm not going to bow. I'm not going to follow. You have met your match. I am here to do my Father's will. And so you have in this moment with the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, this conquest is beginning, the seed of the woman, the one that the, all of Scripture has been waiting for has arrived. And so you see this in the wilderness. This second and greater Adam has come. Satan has met his match. He, is going, he has come to wage war. He is the divine warrior coming to rescue his people. Where Adam failed, Jesus did not. And so you see that not only in the ministry of Jesus, you see that in his life, his obedience to the Father, the way that he only did what the Father instructed him to do. He lived a righteous and perfect life. He did all this, and yet... What we see is that the way that he achieved, the way that his warrior victory, the way that his conquest would be achieved was unlike anything we could have ever imagined, even Satan himself. So what does this conquest achieved look like? And we see that at the cross. Are you saved? (laughs) This is from R.C. Sproul. I recall vividly a time more than three decades ago in 1969 when I was asked this question. These were the volatile days of the 60s, the era of the Cultural Revolution in America. I was a professor of theology at 
the Conwell School of Theology, the campus of Temple University in Philadelphia. The days were anything but peaceful. They were turbulent, marked by demonstrations against the war in Vietnam. There was rage punctuated, student protests, sit-ins. The academic world was in a state of unprecedented turmoil and upheaval. Sounds familiar. I recall trying to lecture above the din of bullhorns outside the classroom windows as I competed with the students for a democratic society. On such a day, I sought an hour's solace, quietude from this cacophony in the faculty dining room. I I stretched my lunch hour to the limit in order to squeeze out every moment of peace I could. As the noon hour ended, I deposited my lunch tray in the bin, began my trek across the plaza to my classroom. I was walking briskly to avoid being late. I was alone, minding my own business, and suddenly, apparently out of nowhere, a gentleman appeared in front of me. He blocked my progress. He looked me in the eye and he said, are you saved? (laughs) I wasn't quite sure how to respond. I uttered in response the first words that came into my mind, saved from what? What I was thinking, but had the grace not to say was, I'm certainly not safe from strangers buttonholing me and asking me questions like yours. (laughs) But when I said, safe from what? I think the man who stopped me that day was as surprised by my question as I had been by his. He began to stammer and to stutter. Obviously, he wasn't quite sure how to respond. Safe from what? Well, you know, you you know what I mean, you know, do do you know Jesus? Then he tried to give me a brief summary of the gospel. This encounter left an impression on me. I experienced real ambivalence. On the one hand, I was delighted in my soul that someone cared enough about me, even though I was a stranger to stop me and ask about my salvation. But it was clear that though this man had a zeal for salvation, he had little understanding of what salvation is. He was using Christian jargon. The words fell from his lips without being processed by his mind. As a result, his words were empty of content. Clearly, the man had a love for Christ and a concern for people. Few Christians have the courage to engage perfect strangers in evangelistic discussion, but sadly, he had little understanding of what he was so zealously trying to communicate. And, And I share that because I think we have to, in this discussion of what did Christ conquer? What is he, why is he victorious? We can so miss the substance, the most important thing in this discussion. We can think, well, yes, he, he saved us from the devil. He saved us from this world. He saved us from this. He saved us from all these things. But we miss what was most, what we needed most saving from. We didn't need to just be saved from Satan. We didn't need to be just delivered from him. There was so much more. The scriptures highlight what we need. And here's here's what R.C. Sproul, he says, the glory of the cross and the gospel is the one from whom we needed to be saved from. We needed to be saved, not from Satan. We needed to be saved from the righteous wrath of God for our sin. We didn't need to be saved from Satan. The one we needed to be saved from God and his righteous and just wrath against our sin is the very one who saves us. The one we needed to be saved from is the one who saves us. Our biggest problem in life is not Satan, but it is God. 
Satan would love for us to be focused on him. He would love for us to think that our victory needs to be just focused on him when we are ignorant of our own heart, our own sin, our own deceit. When Christ said, I came to set you free from the bondage of your sin. I came to set you free from the domain of darkness. And how I did that was not just save you from Satan. What I did is I delivered you from your sin. I set you free from the power, the enslaving power of sin in your life. I gave you eternal life. So now Satan and his ploys and his schemes and his threats are empty. He's been silenced because we have a Savior. Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So this text, it states that we who were once dead in our sins are, have been now have been made alive by God in Christ. It is God who has acted on our behalf. He has forgiven us by removing this debt. He destroying this document on which it was recorded. It was against us. And what is this document? Well, it's probably the Mosaic law. This, this law that we could not stand up against. This, this holiness, that this, this law that expressed the holiness of God. That expressed that we have fallen short of the glory of God. That we could not stand up to it. Or for those who were um, Gentiles and didn't know of the law, it was their conscience that knew that they had, were found guilty against the Lord. It was like an IOU which both Jew and Gentile had not kept. We could not earn God's forgiveness. But God paid that debt. God has not only forgiven us of all our sins, but he has also utterly removed this document of our indebtedness, paid in full. He's blotted it out, nailed it to the cross. And so what God does in this moment is that he, he disarmed the rulers. He stripped them of their dignity and their authority over us. So this is this connection of this power that's over us. We have been set free from our sin. We've been made alive to live for God. And so what God did is he made public display of them. He exposed them to ridicule. He triumphed over them. So imagine this procession through the streets of Rome celebrating military victory. When we say that we are in Christ we silence and we disarm the rulers and authorities because they have no power over us and we put them to shame. That is what Christ came and that is why we have to stand and never move from the penal substitutionary atonement. The wrath that we deserve was placed on him. He bore it in full. It was in that moment when he said, it is finished. The curtain was torn from top to bottom that the principles, the, the principalities, the rulers, the authorities, they were put to open shame. Hebrews 2 talks of this as well. We're, we're, we're given this same picture. This, this Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is the thesis of, of the book. Hebrews 1, 4 through 2, 18, Jesus, he, the writer talks about Jesus being greater than angels there's a greater name, honor, kingdom, and calling. Hebrews 2, 5 through 18, greater because he, he does what no angel could ever do. 
Hebrews 2, 5 through 18, Jesus is greater than angels because he restores us to God's original intention. He brings us to glory. He destroys the power of death and Satan. He becomes a merciful and faithful high priest. So Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, the cross is depicted as a work aimed directly at Satan for the good of us. By Christ's death, which destroyed the power of death, so that through Christ's death, he destroyed death. It was through Christ's death that he destroyed Satan, who held the power of death over us. So we have no fear of death now, and so the power that Satan had over us is gone. It's not there. And so Henry Blocker, he has five key metaphors. I'm not going to go through these just for time's sake, but you can look through those. Um, Michael Horton he emphasizes this, this theme, this Christus Victor theme, Christ's victory. He says, sacrificial, judicial, and economic images of Christ's atoning work combined with those of the battlefield. Christ's cross is a military conquest. Christ is king not only in his resurrection and ascension, but already at the cross, precisely at the place where Satan and his principalities and powers of death thought they had triumphed. The event that in the eyes of the world appears to display God's weakness and the failure of Jesus to establish his kingdom is actually God's mightiest deed in all of history. We can't leave the cross. We have to remember the cross. And then the conquest announced through Christ's resurrection. The resurrection is the sign and seal that death is defeated. We worship a Savior that is alive. So let's look at Acts 2, 24. It says that God raised him up. God raised Christ up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the pangs of death... He w- they were unable to hold him because he had conquered death and sin. This loosens the power and the control and the enslavement that Satan has over us. He is a defeated foe. We have to remember that Christ is alive, that he has, de- he has ascended into heaven. Tw- Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 says, that he, that he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things, over all to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so we see that in the resurrection of Christ that his sacrifice of atonement was accepted by the Father, that he has risen, that he is reigning. It proves his lordship. It proves that he is the king of kings, that we can trust him. And so in his resurrection, Jesus then extends it. He says that I'm going to send you out to proclaim this message of salvation. I'm going to, I want you to go and proclaim to all that, that, that 
that the Christ has risen, that he is reigning, that he is real. And so you see Matthew 28, the church, you see them going forth. You see the apostles going forth, proclaiming this message, being filled with the Spirit. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we go in the power and authority of his name. Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He tells Peter that on this rock, on on your testimony, on this confession of faith, on who I am, nothing will stop this mission. Not even Satan himself will be able to prevent the church from expanding because Christ has defeated and conquered death. We see the blood of the martyrs are the seed of the church. Even death himself, those who are killed for their faith, those who are ushered into, into glory are it's just the Lord is saying, oh, death is defeated. To live is Christ, to die is gain. You, what can you do now to us, Satan? You can kill us, great. We will be with our Savior. You, we do not fear you. We do not fear your power, your control. We do not fear you because he who is in us is greater than he, than you who are in the world. And so we see the church in our mission. It is to proclaim, it is to proclaim this gospel. It is to make known who Christ is and what he has done. And so we proclaim this to all who will hear it. And then we see this promise. There is this conquest that is consummated. There is this conquest that Christ will return. And he will put to end all the works of Satan and his schemes. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So this theme of the divine warrior of Christ, his his conquering, he's putting all things in subjection to him. He is ruling and reigning. Satan has no power. We are called to resist him. We are called to fight against his schemes, and we are to remember that all this was done at the cross, that we have to remember the main point is that Christ is crucified for sin, and that, yes, part of that is that he has conquered Satan, he has conquered his scheme, and, yes, we have an enemy in him, but we have to remember and fix our eyes on Christ. This theme of conquest and Christ as divine warrior, there is an important interrelationship between sin and the power of Satan over us. Jesus, as victor, does not replace him as our penal substitute. In fact, it is precisely because of his substitutionary work that sin, death, and the devil have been destroyed as powers in our lives. So only through paying for our sin that those powers are destroyed in us. So so this idea that, that we have to fight against and resist Satan, the way that we do that is we preach the gospel. 
We resist him by remembering who Christ is and what he's done for us. We do this by proclaiming his work to others. We do this by living in obedience to God. We live holy lives. We live courageous lives that are filled with conviction because of who Christ is and what he's done. That is how the church, that is how the church expands. So here's, here's briefly four errors to avoid when thinking about this. There's a lot of discussion. There's even in the history of the church, what actually Christ did and what happened in his defeat of Satan. So one is the harrowing of hell. It's this idea that Christ on Holy Saturday descended to the realm of the dead and he preached and set some free. It has a long history in Christian thought. This harrowing of hell doctrine, it's, it's in the Orthodox church in particularly. This, this doctrine is so important that they actually will reenact it during Easter liturgy. And the priest actually exits the church with a cross held high. The congregation remains inside. The church doors are locked. The lights are turned off. The darkened church becomes hell, the devil's jail. The priest then pounds on the doors of the church, symbolizing Christ assaulting the gates of Hades, proclaiming, open the doors to the Lord of the powers, the King of glory. Inside the church, the people make a great noise of rattling chains, the resistance of hell to the coming of Christ. Eventually, the doors are open, the cross enters, and the church is lit and filled with incense. And so, um, some of this is based from 1 Peter 3, a text where it talks about where, Satan, where Christ went and he preached to the spirits in prison. He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That, that, that word where he says he proclaimed to the spirits is different. It's a he proclaimed. It's not a he preached the gospel. He proclaimed his victory. And so it's, it's, it's not one, one argument that I agree with is that I think that there is this sense to where he is proclaiming his victory, but not in a setting free from prison, but more of a he is victorious. This is not like preaching the gospel to someone. Robert Latham writes with specific regard to this, a growing appreciation seems to be developing on syntactic, structural, semantic, and theological grounds that what Peter is teaching is that Christ pronounced judgment on the spirits in prison in his resurrection. There is merit in this proposal. On this reading refers to Christ's announcement to the satanic realm of his victory over the demonic. So I think what he's doing is he is proclaiming to them his victory. He's not proclaiming a gospel which they can respond to and be saved like they're the church is depicting in the Orthodox Church. Two, tricking Satan in his humanity. There's kind of a bait and fish. There's, there's this idea that the cross was like a trick. It's like Jesus was the bait on the cross, and Satan came, and he, and he fooled him. And, you gotta, you, and, and that there was this idea that, that on the cross, Jesus was like a, like a worm on a hook. And evil was conquered because Satan thought, oh, I'm going to get Christ by putting him on the cross, and we're going to trick him. And, and actually, Augustine and other church fathers fell, believed in this, and used this in a way of depicting what happened at the cross. But um, Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to say his name, likened the cross to a mousetrap, and the blood of Christ was the bait that the devil took. The belief that by deceiving Adam and Eve, the devil gained some right over their destinies and those of their descendants was held by a number of prominent figures in the first millennium. So you can understand everyone's trying to figure out what exactly 
happened on the cross. And I think that's where evil is conquered as evil, but we have to, to realize like the focus of the cross, the focus <laughs> that, that what took place was that so God could save a people for himself. It wasn't just so he could trick Satan. It wasn't just so he could bait Satan. No. The very last book in the Bible reveals that it is the slain lamb whose shed blood enables martyrs to overcome the devil. So it's the blood of the lamb that sets us free, us free from our sin and death to overcome Satan. There's this ransom theory. This is one, this is one you may be familiar with. It's this idea of paying off the devil. So for about 900 years from the time of Irenaeus and Origen up until the time of St. Anselm, the ransom theory was popular among the church fathers. According to this theory, the sacrifice of Christ's life serves as a ransom to deliver man from the bondage to Satan and from the corruption of, and death that were the consequences of sin. So the church fathers took this, Mark 10, 45, where the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many, and they took that as there was a literal payment that was made to Satan to set them free from their bondage. And much as ransom payment might be made to terrorists who are holding a group of hostages in order to get these hostages liberated, so the sacrifice of Christ was a ransom given to liberate human beings from the bondage, sin, and death. And, and the question that this raises is, well, who, who was this ransom paid to? So, like, who do, so Satan was paid this? Like, was he the one that was in charge? Was he the one that held this over them? No, no. That's, that's, that's not, that's not what, what happened. We know that what happened was is that we were not held captive by Satan. Sure, we were held under his captivity because of our sin and death, but we were actually held accountable and under God's righteous wrath for sin. And Christ's payment, when he says he came to pay, it's that Colossians 2, right? You have to have that language as there was a debt that stood against us of our sin. And it, and it was, that is what had to be paid. So the righteous requirement of the law had to be paid. And so it wasn't that Satan had to be paid off. It was that our sin had to be paid off. And, and so we see this in Colossians 2. We see this in Hebrews. And so we see that this theory that was so adapted what, or, or pursued in the early church um, there isn't as much biblical warrant for it. Um, he said that the temptation the church fathers held, who held to this view, they were focused primarily upon the consequences of sin, mainly death, mortality, and corruption, rather than on sin itself. So they were focused on how God overcame the consequences of sin rather than sin itself. And so they're thinking, okay, so because of sin, we die. Satan's over us, there's mortality, there's all these things that we have, so, so what's up with that? And instead of thinking, wait, wait, well, let's just look at sin. What's the problem of sin? Why is sin so serious? Well, it's because we serve a holy God. It's because, God, we're under the righteous wrath and rule of God. Christ came so that he could do what we could never do. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He didn't come so that we might be handed over from Satan to God. No, we were captive by our sin, and we needed a Savior. We needed to be delivered from the righteous wrath of God, and that is what Christ came to do. Fourthly, there's an overemphasis, victory over the powers. 
And so I think it's just what I've been saying this whole time. Yes, there is victory, but it's rooted in, it's rooted in the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. It's rooted in that Christ came to seek and to save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so how is this relevant? Just a reminder, the cross of Christ, it's, it is cosmic in scope. It's not just for this world, but there the supernatural powers that exist. Christ has defeated our sin, but also the power of the evil one. The best trick the devil ever played was to convince us that he doesn't exist. And I think it's good to remember, oh, he does exist. But it's also good to remember he's been defeated. That, he, we, that our enemy is a defeated enemy. That we, in Christ, are safe. But he will, he will, he, he does have schemes. And he will work out in us, if we're not careful, he will deceive us if we are living in sin. If we, are, if we are living in sin, if we are not living in fellowship with God, if we are not remembering that Christ came to defeat and take us to defeat our sin and to bring us into fellowship with him, if we are living in just unrepentant sin, then that is a great opportunity for Satan to feed lies, to lead us down a path of destruction. He loves that. We have to remember that there is no more condemnation for us which means there's no more power of the devil. We preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's one way you can fight. It's one way that's why this matters. There's no more condemnation. There is a vanquished foe. Satan is powerless against us who are in Christ. So I'll end with this Robert Murray McShane quote. Learn much of the Lord Jesus Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. And so, Lord, I pray that for all of us. I pray that we would be so captivated by you that our hearts would be so filled by the Spirit with the excellency of who you are and what you have done that we will be able to resist the folly of this world, the folly of our sin, the folly of Satan, and that we will live under your smile. Thank you that you came to seek and to save those who hated you, those who were opposed to you, those who deserved, only deserved your wrath. You have poured out your love on us in Christ. You have set us free. The record that stood against us is no more. It is paid in full. No more sin, no more wrath. What we have is the perfect righteousness of your Son. And when you look at us, what you see is not our sin. What you see is Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would, in light of that, live unto you, that we would have a passion to live obedient lives, that we would have a passion for holiness, that we would have a passion to repent and turn from sin, that we would have a passion to identify and call out the lies of Satan in this world, and that you would help us to flee sin and temptation, Lord, that we might bring you glory in all that we do, because Christ, you came. Christ, you conquered, and you promised that you will and are going to return. 
And so we live for you in light of all those wondrous truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, thanks for coming. Drew will be back next week to finish it off. Spiritual warfare. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of his word and gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash you.